and welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, a century-long record is broken. When Speaker of the House Milton Dick scheduled the Aston by-election for April 1st, I'm sure that April Fool's Day was the furthest thing from his mind. He made it very clear that the people of Aston should not be without representation for as short a time as possible after Alan Tudge's resignation from Parliament, which is why the lead time for the by-election was considered to be shorter than usually expected. The result of the by-election, where Labor's Mary Doyle finished the job she started in the 2022 federal election and whittled Tudge's margin down past nothing and into a 7% margin in her favour, meant that the joke was very much on the Liberal Party. For the first time in more than a century, a government has increased their majority at a by-election by taking a seat from their opposition. Leonie Green, our lead Senate candidate for Victoria in the 2022 federal election, joins us to chat about the remarkable results in the Aston by-election and gives us her insights on the political environment in her home state. Leonie, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. Leonie, thank you so much for coming back onto the pod to have a chat with us about the Aston by-election and all things Victoria. I think you now qualify as a friend of the pod. Yay! So we're super keen to dive into this because this is fascinating. This is the word that I just keep using in all the election coverage that we're doing at the moment. It's just like a fascinating result. I, uh, I'm in my, my peak sort of political nerd phase at the moment, watching all this schadenfreude stuff unfold. But before we jump into Aston, I do want to cover off really quickly one thing that, that our, our listeners might be curious about is the fact that we did not run a candidate in Aston, even though it was a federal seat and a, a federal um, by-election, which we were eligible to do. Do you want to take us through why we didn't end up doing that? Yeah, that's a good starting place probably, given that it's the Australian Democrats podcast. There's a few elements to this. So the first one is time. So by-elections by nature come around by surprise often, and then there's really a whole lot of time to get ready with a candidate, with a campaign and run. This one in particular came around quite fast because I think even Very the Liberals and the Greens were caught flat-footed with the efficiency with which the Speaker Milton Dick chose to schedule this particular by-election. I think the, the Liberals in particular expected it to be another couple of months before, you know, after the, the, the time that they picked, which is the 1st of April, before they actually scheduled it. And this one was not called without unseemly haste, but I think it was called pretty hastily, I think, because Milton yeah, Dick felt hasty. that... You know, yeah, Aston should not be without representation with uh, Alan Tudge resigning. Look, I, it was very hasty, I think, and I think it needs to be recognised that ultimately, without question, that has worked in the Labor Party's favour. They had a ready candidate who had run in the election not that long ago and uh, was ready to go. So that was an interesting element, I think, in it as well. For us, though, I think as a party, we have been focused on the Senate rather than looking at local candidates. So that's, that is a different aspect for us. And that took a little bit for us to get our heads around as to whether that's where we were wanting to play, whether that was the right thing to do. There was a lot of conversation around that. There was also conversation around who the candidate would be and making sure that we were really comfortable with if we were going to do that, that it was a candidate that was in the electorate. That was an element of the conversation, which I think still is really important. You've got to have a, co a connection. If you don't have a connection to the electorate, that to me just sounds problematic. And it's an interesting conversation more broadly actually around how many local members are actually living and breathing in their local electorate. But anyway, let's put that aside for a moment. And I think, again, that also played to the Labor Party in this election, ultimately, that there was a very strong connection with the electorate, as opposed to the Liberal Party, whose candidate wasn't from the electorate at all. So that was a, an element for us. We considered it. We had a number of meetings where we 
really considered this in depth. We were very keen. There are a number of us that were really keen to have a candidate run. We called out for candidates as well, but made um, the call at the 11th hour with the 11th hour timeline that we had not to run in this by-election. So it was a decision of not feeling that we were ready from a campaign perspective, not ready from a candidate perspective at this point in time. And again, as I said, you know, it is that shift from a Democrat's perspective of focusing on a local electorate and what that electorate needs, which is really quite different to what we have been focused on as a party, which is as the Australian Democrats and looking at the role that we could play in the Senate. So number of things kind of working against us, if you like, timing being absolutely the number one. <laughs> and all through that, I've got to say as well, really heartening and interesting experience as well, just to see the excitement that there was and energy that there was behind the party internally around actually, can we do this? Can we get a candidate up and running? What's it going to involve? What do we need to do? Really great connectivity and conversations around that, which was great. But I'm also really comfortable that it was the right decision for us at this point in time not to stand a candidate. Because I mean, our home, natural home is the Senate. The, the Democrats mm. have never held a federal lower house seat in our history. Our trailblazing first female leader, Janine Haynes, nearly won a lower house seat back in the 80s. She um, fell short and that sort of actually precipitated her, her leaving the parliament. So it's always been a, a mountain that we haven't quite managed to, to, to climb just yet. And like you said, having that infrastructure and that focus is uh, a very different kettle of fish to looking at things from a statewide level as in, in the Senate. So just in case anyone is curious as to why we didn't run, but that's why. If we had run, I think in many ways the goal for us was exposure and just mm. having it seen that we were there and we're back and we're running. But I think with that, with every decision like that, there is always that question of the risk and reward. And mm. if we wanted that exposure, we want it to be the right exposure that we're ready and that we're really clear yes. on our message and we know what we're doing and we're ready to run. And with five weeks, <laughs> try yeah. and pull all of that together. That was going to be a, a too hard a, a hurdle really for us to jump yeah. at this point in time. And particularly not to have a strong local candidate who's deeply sort of plugged into the issues that are of interest to that electorate as well. If you're on a run of the lower house, there's definitely like there's a lot of groundwork to be done in terms of understanding the community and understanding the issues that are important to the community and, and all that sort of thing and, and can't really do that from a standing start. No, exactly right. And that is where if you if you look at what Mary Doyle was able to really do in that space, having run in the 2022 election. Okay. She wasn't at a standing start. <laughs> she was absolutely ready and raring to go and very well connected and ready. And the results in 2022 really spoke to that as well, actually. She had already made a, a really great headway and I don't think that has been sufficiently highlighted, actually, in a lot of the commentary about this by-election. There's this kind of assumption that it's an overnight success in a sense, but actually not that long ago, she'd already made it a marginal seat. Like she carved 7% off Alan Tudge's margin last year. Mm -hmm. No one's giving her credit for that. I think mm. in the shock of, of the loss of Aston, like it's it sort of coming as, oh, we didn't see this coming. It's like, well, she chipped away half of his lead, you know, 10 months ago. Which is, you know, kind of interesting in and of itself, isn't it? With Hugely interesting. John. Steve and I being sort of outsiders to Victoria, obviously, Aston was fascinating. Not enough popcorn in the world to uh, to watch this one unfold. What mm. was it like seeing it unfold from within Victoria and having it in your neighbourhood, so to speak? So, so, and it is kind of in my neighbourhood. It's up the road from me, really. Although I'm in one of the two blue seats still uh, in metropolitan Melbourne. But it, to me, it was, um, it was heartening, mm. actually, for me. Mm. It was just a a sense of, and not unlike the state election, actually, a, a sense of, yep, I'm in the right state and I'm not in a bubble. Like sometimes, you know, it is easy to feel like we are in a, a political bubble and that we're not hearing what else is going on. And the Aston by-election for me was a sense of confirmation that actually there is a broader change at least within Victoria, but it certainly feels that it's broader than Victoria. But I think Victoria, there is a there is a broader change that is happening in Victoria in my mind because 
the Victorian Liberal Party is of a particular or it's in a particular state or in a particular state. That's quite funny. We're in Victoria. In and of itself is just an interesting microcosm within the Liberal Party more generally. I feel like it's just there's been so much happening in the Liberal Party in Victoria that has shifted who would be in any way interested in joining the Liberal Party in Victoria and therefore who in any way influences what's happening within that party. And I, I don't know, perhaps it would be really interesting actually to think, Stephen Alana, what your views are in terms of WA and New South Wales on this front, but because I do, I kind of feel like Victoria is more acute in this in terms of how much of a shift it has been in terms of the religious right in particular. There had, and we've, it's been in the press, right? We've had an active sense within the Victorian Liberal Party of branch stacking, for want of a better term. That's what it has been in terms of having far-right religious folk joining the party and therefore making decisions about who's standing and what policy stance they take as well. I don't get the sense that that is happening quite as significantly in the other states, but I'd be interested to know what your views are on that front. Well, in WA, yeah, uh, it, it happens. So, so the, the religious right, same as Victoria, branch stacked and over, over a number of years accumulated a certain amount of power and uh, influence in the WA Libs. There's a, there was a group called the clan within the WA Libs that were actually linked to Matthias Corman, which was surprising to me when I realised that. But when, when Julie Bishop resigned from the seat of Curtin, her, the, the successor that she wanted did not achieve pre-selection because the clan under, under Corman sort of swept in and, and were able to nominate Celia Hammond who was a very conservative, um, sort of religiously focused person. And that's really worked out well for them in Curtin uh, in the 2022 election where Curtin fell to an independent because mm -hmm. the shift from someone like Julie Bishop to Celia Hammond was, I think, too much for the, the good burgers of Curtin. And then, of course, in the 2021 state election, we, we decided to solve our problem of the Liberal Party by just essentially eliminating them altogether. I, don't, I mention this a lot on the podcast, but it just never gets old. I know someone who was a long-standing member of this WA Liberal Party who quit the party in disgust in 2019 over the intrusion of the religious right and, and, and where the party was heading in terms of moving further and further to the right, who told the party at the time this would not end well for the party if they kept going down that path and they ignored him so he quit. And he was correct. Like, he, he was, he's been proven right. And I, I can see this kind of unfolding for the, the Victorian Liberal Party. I mean, uh, the first election for Daniel Andrews was an absolute landslide. His re-election, when you know the media tried to confect the illusion that this would be tight and that Matthew Guy was somehow in with a chance, and it was a second landslide. And I suspect that by the time it comes around for a th you know the next Victorian state election in four years' time, it'll be a third landslide because there's just not going to be a functional opposition left in Victoria. Being that that's my perception as an outsider. I'm glad you jumped in with that one because I it's quite funny. I clearly I'm now feeling very Victoria centric because <laughs> here I'm going. Yeah, see, we're the worst. Our Victorian Liberal Party is the worst. I forgot how well the WA <laughs> Liberal Party had done what they did. So it's a really interesting divide, I think, between the Victorian State Liberal Party and the Victorian Federal Liberal Party. And in many ways, I actually think that the Federal Party members have got an even tougher job. But the state is an interesting one in terms of Victorian state members because John Bushido is is trying. So John Bushido is your kind of moderate, if you like, in terms of him coming in and trying to lead a more inclusive Liberal Party. But he is trying to do that within a party that is and has not been inclusive for some time and is made up of members who are not on the same page as him like this is this is the interesting challenge of party politics right that we rely on people being politically active and politically interested and connecting to parties that match their values and for a long time the liberal party survived on their broad church concept of you know we have a, a broad church of interests the problem is that they don't anymore and it is becoming a more and more narrowed political view and so anyone within that party that is of a moderate persuasion is really hamstrung. So John Bushido tried to expel Maura Deeming 
and did not succeed. Backed down, in fact. So and, and, you know, and, uh, and we should come back to that because that's <laughs> interesting in and of itself. But I just want to jump in. Like I'm bristling a little bit at the idea that a Christian takeover of the Liberal Party is being done better in Victoria than it is in New South Wales. <laughs> but the thing that like I want to remind or bring bring to the attention of listeners is that just two years ago, the South Australian Liberal Party froze new memberships because they were being taken over by Pentecostals. So after a series of branch moves and and votes where they were pre-selecting candidates in advance of the state election, I believe, there are a number of things that were going on. They had an influx of new members. Those members were overwhelmingly Pentecostal. They were voting out well-established incumbent Liberal Party figures. And in the fallout of that, they actually stopped accepting new members while they sorted this out. So as much as we have issues in both Victoria and New South Wales, South Australia actually went so far as to say no new members because it's that bad that it's impacting our ability to actually be a functional party. We think it's undermining us at a, at a fundamental level, which I find I find funny. Yeah. All I right. Well, South say. Australia definitely wins. I think. Oh, I'm not going that far. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> Maybe they Stop win on the basis that they actually yes. did something about it. <laughs> they did something about it. Yeah. Yes. Look, there's there's certainly yeah. a lot going on in in New South Wales. I think it's there's absolutely a broader trend within conservative parts of Australian society where religious groups in particular, and actually I I should pause there because I think religion has played a part in Australian politics for a long time, for a long, Mm. long time. But it's typically been the Catholic religion or the Anglican religion, but they have been very, very prominent in Australian politics since the first boats pulled up ashore type of things. It's been there all along. I think the new part here is this, fundamentalist Pentecostal infiltration of the Liberal Party and the disproportionate representation they have both within the party and as a result in federal and state parliaments. Mm. And I should point out that the Democrats always had a very strong Christian membership which surprised me as an atheist coming into the party, how strong. But it was always, I guess you could call it the small c follower of Jesus Christian in terms of doing good works and, and, and all that sort of stuff, there wasn't a strong... More aligned with the Country Women's Association at a, at a good bake stall than, say, you know, Hillsong. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there, there always did seem to be that sort of separation of church and state within the party in terms of, mm-hmm. in terms of our, you know, being informed in our values, but then our policies being yeah. science and evidence-based. So yes, it was an interesting yeah. mix to me coming in and yeah. uh, sort of discovering that aspect of our history. It's like, oh... How does that work? But okay, clearly mm. it did for a long time. It's it's so. yeah. It's a really interesting kind of. It's a very important and interesting reminder, actually. I stay. I think stay because it's there's something about who shows up, right? Who is prepared to show up and be politically active as a volunteer? You have. There's got to be something that you have by way of interest to put your time and energy into that, yes. and. If we think about the the historical element of where our parties kind of originated from, from a religious perspective and a religious interest. So one of my interesting kind of bylines in this too, my dad was involved with the DLP as a fairly conservative Catholic back in the day, long time ago, but that was absolutely caught up in him as an active Catholic church member and wanting to see change. So if we think about who is more likely to be politically active at the moment, there's got to be something in it for them, right? And the problem that we've had is that we've had perhaps, again, this kind of increase in fundamentalism from a, um, a Christian perspective, so Christian right, who are absolutely motivated to retain the society that they think we should be. And they have then very actively taken over a party that previously was not quite that persuasion. So not, even though not anything like it, yeah, yeah. So 
where am I going with that? I, I guess my uh, the connection, I guess, in, in that sense then is if you look at who else is then politically active, so people have then moved away from the Liberal Party to say, this is not my party anymore, right? You, you're not yep. going to represent me. I don't fit. Mm. My values don't align. And at the same time, we've then had this community independence movement happening where people have been politically motivated in sometimes in really incredible ways in terms of how much community support they have had, motivated by, I want a local member that I know and that is listening to us and that Mm. shows up for us and is aligned with us by way of values. So there's there's an interesting shift there without Mm. any religious... Yeah. element to it, they've been able to tap into that energy. I, I, I think one of the interesting shifts there and one of the really telling shifts there is the actual belief system that's at play in Pentecostalism. It is a, a set of beliefs best described, I think, as a, as a prosperity cult or a prosperity-based religion. The idea is that if you are doing well, it's because you deserve it. And if bad things are happening in your life, be it illness, accident, injury, or poverty, you know, misadventure of one sort or another, that is your fault. It's a reflection of a character flaw on your part. For people with that worldview to seek to take the reins of government casts a really dangerous and toxic shadow over our public service which is geared towards providing a social safety net so that people get an education irrespective of their circumstances, that people can seek health care irrespective of their circumstances, that people can seek justice irrespective of their circumstances. That is not what they believe and it is not how they make policy. And, and you can see that quite clearly playing out in, in things like the robo-debt scheme where that was absolutely a manifestation of that belief system. There was a vulnerable group, vulnerable group who were being punished because they were vulnerable, and that is an indication that they've fallen out of or never held God's grace, to use the words mm. of Pentecostalism, and that it was all right and good and proper that those people in power use that power to further punish them and go after them, that that was, that was the right way that things should happen. I think that's terribly, terribly dangerous. That's like who's taking, taking on extra ministries as party. well, right? Exactly right. But that's who's taking over the Liberal Party. It's not the local church group at your local Uniting Church or your local Anglican Church or your local Catholic Church. It's not them who are showing up. Mm. We can see from the 2022 election and the repudiation of Scott Morrison once the electorate had worked him out and his very overt display of his Pentecostal faith. Hmm. And that has, I think, continued right down to Aston. And again, one of the architects of robo-debt, Alan Tudge, I think chose to resign in part of the the very poor display that he, he put on at the Robo-Debt Royal Commission where he was sort of left with basically nowhere to hide and it did not look good for him. And and I think I think that was for all that Mary Doyle worked her butt off and reduced his margin in the 2022 election and then uh, went on to win the seat. The fact that Tudge wasn't running, I think the swing, the continued swing toward Mary Doyle was part yeah. of that. Like like that was a I think if if he had stuck around and contested the the 2025 election, which is when the next one is due she would have you know annihilated him in that election because of his association with robo debt and, and this family man uh, or and, you know, persona and, and. that he put forward and then you know the revelations of his extramarital affair with Rochelle Miller he yeah he was damaged goods and i think also you know the the victorian liberals as a consequence were going to have an uphill battle getting in someone that the electorate could kind of connect with and they chose to parachute in someone with a very close connection to the Murdoch press, who, to, to be fair to them, they chose a woman. They chose a woman of colour. You can see them trying to get it right. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to, you know, we need, we need to put up a woman. We've managed to find someone of Indian background. So great. We're ticking all the diversity boxes. But they still kind of messed up. Still not from that electorate. 
yeah. and not sufficiently connected. And and again, as we said at the start as well, they were also kind of thrown by the timeline. Um, mm. So there's only so much that you can do in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. There's part of me that also, I was just reflecting, Steve, on, you know, would Alan Tudge have been annihilated at the next election? <laughs> like robo-debt, people who have been impacted by robo-debt, of course, mm-hmm. But those of us who have been following, I kind of wonder how many non-political nerds have really followed what's been happening. Yes, it was in the press a bit, and yes, he looked ridiculous. Maybe being in opposition would have given him enough places to hide that he would not have lost his seat at the next election. Maybe. It's entirely possible, right? But between now and then, the Royal Commission will hand down its findings. Those findings will be, <laughs> will, 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 be, will be damning. He is yep. one of the central figures. His testimony was not of a sort that would lead me to believe that he will come off in a good light at all. He really did not come across well in his testimony. Remarkably, Christian Porter did in terms of how, and they were they were sort of senior and junior minister together. So same set of event, uh, events facing them. Christian Porter's testimony came across much, much more genuine, much warmer, much more caring. He came the closest to accepting responsibility out of any of the ministers who spoke, like all of this kind of thing. I was surprised, but I, I will give him credit that his performance at the Royal Commission was far, far better than Alan Tudges was, maybe he would have squeaked through. Maybe, as I say, being in opposition would have created enough an, an, enough of a cover for him that he survived. But honestly, the, the campaign against him would have been very well targeted, very well funded. Yeah. The momentum was with them, all of that kind of thing. I suspect he, he really would have been beaten. Plus the messaging, like the arsenal of messaging that they would have had to run against him as well yeah. in terms of the affair, robo-debt, and whatever other scandals he managed to create for himself while in opposition. That may yet to come out as well. Like well, the, idea that that that's, the idea that that's the only one because <laughs> that's the one that we've heard about, I, I, I don't bank on that fact at all either. Uh, Leonie, from within Victoria, was there a perception that the Liberals would keep Aston or or was there an expectation that Labor might actually prevail? Like considering that it's 10 months since the federal election, I dispute this this notion that the honeymoon is not over. I I, I think 10 months down the track, if things are still going well, it's not a honeymoon. The honeymoon was over when they delivered their October budget. Yeah. Exactly. But the fact that the, the government is, is actually governing well and the electorate have responded to actually having a responsible government that, that is actually doing stuff can't be discounted as well. What was the what was the vibe? So uh, I don't trust the vibe anymore. <laughs> I don't think I've, I've trusted the vibe for quite a while now because I've got it wrong a few times and it scarred me. My sense was that it was going to be pretty tight. And really, it was quite tight. Yeah. It, yes, it was called quickly because we could see what was happening, but it wasn't a, a landslide result. I think the interesting element on all of this, and and this is this really isn't any new commentary. This has kind of been everything that people have been saying. It's kind of a fascinating time. We've got interest rates going up and up and up. We've got cost of living challenges. We've got mm. massive housing issues. People are hurting. Mm. So for people to be hurting but still feel that the current government is doing the best they can in the circumstances, Yes, that's kind of amazing and wonderful. Mm, very true. Um, because I, genuinely I think they are doing the best they can in some pretty revolting circumstances. For that to be, in essence, the judgment that the people in Aston have made, I think is really heartening. And it's always hard in any election to kind of go, okay, is it a judgment on the government or is it a judgment on the woeful, ridiculous opposition? Mm. Who knows? I would like to think in Victoria it is a little bit of both. But, you know, at the same time, I think with every election, and this is this, is this challenge, right, of what bubble are we in and what echo chamber are we kind of mm. really listening to, the first preference votes for Labor and Liberal in the Aston by-election were really very, very close. And I think that is really important to remember in all of this, that this is not about people across the board going, the Labor Party are fantastic. We still have, let's go roughly half of the electorate 
a little bit less than, but roughly half the electorate, saying, actually, the Liberal Party are okay or we want the Liberal Party. And so we can say, look, this is extraordinary. Look at the Melbourne map now and there's these two blue dots and everything else is this sea of red, but it's not, right? Yes, the majority of people got across the line with preference votes that people wanted the Labor Party in that election, uh, sorry, in that electorate. But I think it's always important to remember that it's not about everyone wanting the Labor Party in. (laughs) Mm. That might be completely and ridiculously obvious to say, but I just think that it's got to be remembered. So I had the the numbers up here before. So the 1,500 more votes ended up with Mary Doyle okay. ahead of Rashina. Like that. Oh, it, yeah, so that's just sort of the straight Liberal Labor split, isn't it? That, that's not taking into account preferences from, from, from minor parties and independents. No, that's after, that's after preferences. Or am I looking at first preference? Sorry, I might have been looking at first preference then. I was looking at first preference. I take that back. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Now I'm looking at the right numbers. So um, 1,500 or thereabouts in first preference difference between Labor and Liberal. Right. All right. That, that, so, yeah, that, that makes sense and it also isn't super surprising. And then it's about 6,000 between them once you put all of the preferences in and you've got the two-party preferred. So right, it's about 6, right. 6,000 between them once they actually, Mary yeah. Doyle gets elected. So, yeah, so, right. First preference, there's only 1,500 people that voted for Labor over the Liberal Party when you think about those two mm. major parties in the consideration. So that's, I think that's the other bit, that we can talk about the Liberal Party being decimated. <laughs> people are moving away from the Liberal Party in tropes. Well, sure, yeah, they are, but actually they're still getting serious numbers of people voting for them despite the mess that they're in, despite the ridiculous stuff that they do. Or just don't like any of the other options available to them. But And this is something that we, we canvassed with Tim Dunlop on a previous podcast where this, this rising sort of unattached centre between the Liberal and Labor rustodons where, you know, who are voting for minor parties, who are voting for independents, and whose vote could change on, a, on an election-by-election election basis depending on who's running and what issues are important to that particular person at any given moment. And so we do see that reflected in the Aston by-election. But it is, I think, one of the great strengths of the Australian political infrastructure that we do have mandatory preferential voting where, and I described it to the Young Democrats once because they asked me about this as, for example, everyone has to decide what dessert they want. And, you know, you have the choice of vanilla ice cream, tiramisu, I don't know, sticky date pudding or whatever. And so you might go, well, I really want to have sticky date pudding. But in the first past the post uh, voting system, if the rest of the restaurant doesn't agree with you that sticky date pudding is the thing, then you're not going to get it and you get no dessert. But you might go, well, look, sticky date pudding is my first preference. If I can't have that, I wouldn't mind having the tiramisu. But if I can't have that, then I'm happy to settle for the vanilla ice cream. And at the end of the day, everyone might just get vanilla ice cream, but at least everybody gets dessert. And you see this reflected in the Aston I, by-election. Because I love like, there's that. Roughly- I love preferential voting by <laughs> dessert. But having said that, though, right, Alana, I, I, I think the interesting thing is, though, that if you were um, of a more conservative voting variety you really didn't have much of a choice so I think Mm. that's actually a really good point in that yes the numbers from a first preference perspective for the Liberal Party in my mind were higher than I would have liked (laughs) to have seen them but there were only five candidates so we had a fusion party um, we had a Greens we had an Independent and then Liberal and Labor. Right. It wasn't a shopping list of United Party, you know, United Australia, One Nation, etc. They actually didn't have their standard shopping list of uh, vanilla ice cream, tiramisu, <laughs> sticky cake pudding. If you were of a conservative mindset, you would really, yes. you really could only to vote put for the Liberals. Numbers on there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, which is interesting. That's actually made me feel a little bit better about the first preference numbers. That in in many ways. Mm. I thought were. Yeah, because I know that like one one nation deliberately chose not to run a candidate in Aston. And I th- think they thought they were doing the Liberals a favour by not doing that. But it, it's possible in some ways, ha- had they run a candidate, 
as you said, the, the more conservative side of the fence would have had a little bit of a shopping list to choose between and the preference flows might have helped out Rashina Campbell a bit more than they did. But because really if you were on the, the conservative side of the fence, you only had the Liberals to vote for, possibly yep. made it a bit difficult. And there were only 3,000-odd informal votes as well. So it, well, it's, it's not like there were a whole lot of people, yeah, it's not like a whole lot of people were saying, I can't vote for any of them. That's also very interesting. Mm. So it showed that Aston as an electorate was quite highly engaged. Fascinating. It will be interesting to see how this plays out in what we think will be a few months' time in a by-election in Scott Morrison's seat of Cook. So there are there are rumours that he intends to step down from the federal parliament in the middle of the year. I think he's indicated quite strongly that he's not going to be there through the 2025. So at some point, we're going to get a by-election in the seat of Cook. And it really will be interesting to see how this plays out, both in terms of who the Liberal Party puts up as a candidate, whether or not the Nationals choose to put up a candidate because their coalition rules say they're allowed to when the incumbent is not running. So when an incumbent retires, both coalition partners are allowed to run candidates. So that will be interesting. But equally, whether or not we get candidates from the likes of Palmer United, One Nation, the Liberal Democrats, these sorts of further right-wing parties and, and much more conservative parties, whether or not they'll stand and what that might do to the vote. I get the feeling that in Cook, there will be like a, a more of a smorgasbord of options because it's going to be such a high-profile seat and, and to have such a high-profile incumbent pulling the pin mm. will be super interesting. And I should stress to people, these kind of by-elections are actually quite normal in really like the first 12 to 18 months after an election because incumbents who who ran and were re-elected possibly not expecting to be re-elected. And also they might just go, you know what, I'm not interested in slogging it out in opposition for however long. And again, it, it does depend on how well the government is travelling. I mean, I think John Howard had a number of by-elections in his first year. Kevin Rudd had at least two, if memory serves. So again, you know, people re-evaluating their life choices and pulling the pin in the first 12 months, not super unusual. What is unusual about Aston is it is this once in a century record-breaking instance where the government actually increased their majority after an election. It hasn't been done. And Cook will be super interesting because of the fact that it's a former prime minister who is pulling the pin as well. But there's rumours that Scott Roberts in Fadden might also pull the pin. I suspect, and this is, you know, this is a very, very early prediction, so it's probably going to be really mm-hmm. wrong. But my guess is that if if Cook goes badly, either in that they lose Cook or mm. that whoever replaces Scott Morrison just scrapes over with a really tiny margin because Scott, Scott Morrison's margin is quite quite large at the moment. It did get reduced in the 2022 election, but it's still massive. It might, Stuart Robert might be prevailed upon to keep his bum on that seat until after, after the 2025 election. It's the whole once this happens, since twice it's a coincidence, three times it's enemy action thing. You lose a third by-election as an opposition party, the runners on kind of thing, like the the rot's really starting to set in and then the perception is starting to become fixed and it doesn't bode well for whoever's opposition leader does. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we did mention it earlier and, and I, I will come back to it because I think it's a reasonable point when you when you use phrases like at that point the rot has set in because I, I, I think it's it's fair to say that the rot has set in. When a, a state parliamentarian can't be sanctioned for consorting with Nazis in Victoria, where they come out in support of them and their their party leader does not have enough support from their colleagues to actually expel that member, I'd say the rot's well and truly set in. I don't think it's coming. I I think we're well and truly past that point. And the electoral results over the last 18 to 24 months there is no signs of stability anywhere on the electoral map for the Liberal Party. I don't see where they're rebuilding anywhere. All of it is breaking apart under their feet. But also I don't see any sign of them actually understanding that they have a problem. It, again, comes to mind that Simpsons meme of Principal Skinner going, am I out of touch? No, 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 it's the children that are wrong. I mean, from the WA election onward, the response from the Liberal Party has been, no, 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 the voters are clearly mistaken. Right through to the federal election, right through to Aston. I mean, 
to give him credit, Peter Dutton did go on insiders the day after this. This what was a shocking loss to to the Liberal Party, and he fronted up and he expected to be it, talking about a victory, but you know, did go yeah. on. Yes, yeah, but he, he still fronted up. Even, like, the, the, he didn't pull out at the last minute like some might have expected him to. His answers were exactly the same. Well, we'll mm. look into this. We're going to have to consider this. Well, what? Yeah. Already? You're only just now considering it? And, and where's your results from the last election and the Victorian state election? Like you can't just keep navel-gazing and thinking that you are... Have you ever seen a, a rock climber fall off uh, the side of a mountain and because they gather momentum, one of the clamps will ping out and they'll fall further and the next one will ping out and they'll fall further? That's the Liberal Party right now, hoping that the next clamp is the one that holds. There's nothing to be done other than keep falling and hope the next one holds. But that's basically them right now. No, you're right. It's a really good analogy. And then there's no... There's no reflection. There's no, and and all the commentators that they actually listen to, are going. Well, this is what happens when you go woke, and you you know clearly you were you were too far to the left. You know this whole oh you know you're chasing labour to the left notion, which as a left leaning mm-hmm. progressive party, we're going. So you what now? Yeah. Because you know progressives tend to castigate labour for following the Liberal Party to the right, but but you know the answer being. Well, clearly, we we are we are not conservative enough. We need to move further to the right because, uh, you know, as on a previous episode, Steve, you you were quoting Rowan Dean on Sky News Go in the New South Wales state election, saying that you know the Liberal Party were not offering voters what they wanted, and therefore they voted Labor because the Liberal Party weren't conservative enough. Much as I I deeply despise Dutton, and I've not I've not uh, hidden that. I don't think it's just him. I mean, he, he's the he's the figurehead. He's he's the very visible element of all of this. But it's not. It's you know, not he has him, a whole... it's his goal, though, right? His yes. his goal is to keep the party united, mm. and for whatever reason that that was his goal. Apparently, even for the Aston by election, keep the party united, and he believes he is succeeding somehow in doing so, despite people that he's losing, including Ken White this week. He is holding on to the members that he has rather than actually thinking about where can our new members come from. I think the yeah. the example that you gave earlier, Steve, of South Australia, South Australia tried to stop what was happening within the party in a way that the Liberals have not been able to do, it seems, anywhere else. I'm not sure they succeeded, but they tried. And that's not happening elsewhere. And then they're, they're clearly not actively trying to find new members that will feel like they fit. Yeah, like they, they, they would be. It, if, if you look at how One Nation went at the, at the last election in New South Wales and in Victoria and at the federal election, they're getting less votes, not more. And they are further to the right. They are further in that fringe. The Liberal Democrats are further out on that fringe. They're getting less votes, not more. They're not finding more votes out there. They're not pulling votes from from the Liberal Party, they're losing votes. The Liberal Party is not going to win a majority by chasing after the small gains that One Nation might have or the small group of voters that One Nation might have. They're just not going to do it. And they're not going to do it in a way that stops them bleeding even more voters from that more moderate centre-right trench or area, right? Like it's just not going to happen. They're going to, move, they're going to lose hundreds of thousands of voters from that centre-right area, that more moderate area. They're not going to find them further out on that fringe, no matter what Rowan Dean thinks, no matter what Peter Credlin thinks, no matter what Andrew Bolt thinks. Those tactics aren't vote winners. They're, they're great for Sky News' rating. They're great for the business model of News Corp. They are not good for Australian politics, and they're certainly not good for a group of people who want to form government. It's just not the way it's going to happen. One thing that came up that I thought was super interesting was the fact that now, you know, with the loss of Aston, the majority of the seats held by the coalition are now in Queensland where they are formerly a single party under the LNP and therefore Queensland now dominates the federal caucus and therefore dominates policy development and and so on and so forth. Now there, there is there is a um, you know perception that Queensland is by nature a more conservative state and 
I, I think that can be highly contested depending on which area of Queensland you're in. But as well, a whole, the LNP is definitely more conservative than, say, yes. the New South Wales division of the, coal- of, of the Liberals. And so if they are now dominating discourse and the direction of the party and everything else, everyone's been quick to blame the moderates for rolling over and you know essentially playing dead. And Look, there is there an element of that, and the electorate took care of a lot of them, the so-called moderates in the 2022 election. But there's nobody left to challenge the the worldview of the LNP within that party room, except for Bridget Archer, who think- apparently is under threat of having her pre-selection disendorsed yes. in for the next election. If the Queensland group of the party gets to dictate policy going into the next federal election, then Queensland may be the only seats that they win. But they won't win in suburban Melbourne. They won't win in suburban Sydney. They won't win in suburban Perth. They may even struggle to hold seats in suburban Brisbane. Mm. But those will be the only places that they do win if they do, pretty much. There, There might be a few sort of standouts, but the policy that comes out of Queensland is driven by the likes of Matt Canavan. Like, that's not an election winner. Matt Canavan's suite of policies are not the thing that gets you sweeping in the government. We're not going to get a a, a Matt slide. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, they'll end up with less seats in the lower house than the Greens. Yeah, well, now the Nationals, I can't remember the figures, but it's something like, I think, 21 to 26 in the, in the the federal coalition like the, because the Nationals at the moment have kept all their seats. And the way the LNP works is that when you get to Canberra, you choose which party room you, you, you choose to sit in. So you either sit in the Liberals or you sit in the Nationals because they are one party in Queensland. And so on a federal level, the, co- uh, the Liberals used to be the dominant coalition partner and used to have the majority of the seats. But now the, the Nationals basically are, are they're almost level pegging which means that the nationals will now have greater sway over policy and and, uh, positioning in that as well. And that's probably not going to do them much good. No, it's going to lose some votes on people who are serious about climate change. It's going to lose some votes on people who are serious about the environment and biodiversity. Equally, it's going to lose some votes on people who care about social justice issues because the National Party doesn't have a strong social justice platform by by any stretch. I just can't see it happening. Like it's another plank falling out under their feet while they pretend that they're doing everything in their power to make it stop. There's not enough self-reflection. There is no cleaning house. There's no leadership. There's no policy agenda that reshapes or redefines who they are there's no vision setting for the future like and the idea that that's going to come from a collection of peter dutton and the queensland lnp nope 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 so again on so on top of all the self-inflicted structural wounds that they're causing themselves on policy and so on and so forth demographics are against them as well so for the first time in the nation's history millennials now outnumber baby boomers in, in terms of population, in terms of voting population. And the younger you get, the less people support the Liberal Party. So in terms of the Zoomers, in terms of the, the voting cohort of the Zoomers, which is 18 to 24, one in five support the Liberal Party. And it's only going to get worse. To be, to be quite brutal about it, you know, as, as the Boomers shuffle off the mortal coil, their numbers will reduce and the number of Zoomers coming in Oh, who who will attain voting age? It's it's not going to vote well. I was um I was chatting to my my godson who's just turned eighteen. He's super excited to be able to vote and and everything, and there's no way in hell he would vote liberal. His generation are the best educated generation of humanity in the history of humanity, and they are highly politically engaged. So that doesn't bode well for the libs either. No, that's exactly right. And the younger generations are trending progressive they're trending to the left as well probably even more strongly so it's one of those things i I think the idea of a conservative platform that puts forward a vision for australia that is attractive to a group of australians who are 18 to 35 say let's let's call it that sort of broad an area i cannot see coming from the current crop of liberal party leadership I can't see it coming from the people who appear to be waiting in the wings. Um, you know, the idea that Susan Lee might step forward and, and put forward a shining vision for Australia, 
I, I just don't see happening. So I, I, I can't see it happening. What, what we've seen in, in Aston, I think, is further evidence that there is no flaw beneath the falling fortunes of the Liberal Party, and they're really not doing anything to change that. They're just going to keep falling right across the board. We're going to end up with, as we have in WA, where the Liberal Party parliamentary cohort flips a coin to see who drives each day. <laughs> It deeply troubles me, though, and I, I know this is, I've said this before, I think, on this podcast, it deeply troubles me because it leaves us with no opposition. So even in Victoria, where I think Dan Andrews and his team are actually doing a great job in really difficult circumstances, I want an opposition that is holding them to account more. I want an opposition that is advocating in a a genuine and appropriate way for greater transparency. We don't have it. Don't have it. And we're, we're no. not going to get it in the way that mm-hmm. the Liberal Party are behaving. And that deeply troubles me in terms of where we're going. I'm hopeful that in the next federal election, we end up with a much stronger crossbench to the point where that crossbench becomes the force for that sort of constructive opposition, that force of tension that sees much better legislation pass parliament, much better policy enacted. It's not going to come from the opposition party. And that's that's really what we need to see. Because I agree with you. I think yeah. it's important for the quality of our government that you have that constructive opposition rather than just somebody taking up seats saying no. Yeah. And then there's sort of murmurings that Really, the Greens are now assuming the role of the opposition in in terms of being sort of more constructive than that. But A, difficult to do when you've only got four members in the lower house, no matter how many senators you have. And B, that I think will present challenges of its own to the Greens because their activist base, I think, will struggle with the constructive opposition side of of that. So that's it's not going to be an easy ride for the Greens either. I don't think in, in, in that sort of respect. Can we touch on briefly with the media? Because I was really taken aback by how shocked the media were at the Aston by-election because leading up into it, everyone assumed it was going to be close, partially because of the great work that Murray Doyle had done in the 2022 election in in shaving off Alan Tudge's, lead, uh, to Alan Tudge's margin, but also because I wasn't closely looking at the polls, but the polls seemed to indicate that it was close. But I was saying to a friend of mine, it, I, I really felt like the the media was sort of telling on themselves by being so astonished at the result. And she said to me, well, th- like this was actually unprecedented. They have never seen anything like this before. And she she's correct. And to carry on that point or expand on that point, I think also the media's natural assumption that the coalition are the natural party of government, you know, kind of told on them a bit that I think I think they were genuinely astonished that an electorate would take a look at a Labor government and go, actually, they're doing okay. Yeah. We'll back them as opposed to this blow-in from Brunswick, whose, whose husband is the editor of a Murdoch paper. Mm-hmm. And and also the the sense of you know as as we've just spoken about the Liberal Party not learning the lessons of repeated election defeats. I look forward to the book from Chris Wallace looking at the Liberal Party and their 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 election performance over the last two or three years across the country and and what uh, she has to tell us as she as she did with the Liberal Party sorry with the Labor Party in the aftermath of the 2019 election. If you haven't read that, it's a it's a very very good read. Her book is called How to Win an Election, I think is, is the name of that one. I'm yes. looking Yes, How to Win an Election. That's the one. It sort of dissects how Labor failed to win the 2019 election. And I, I, I look forward to your book on this one, Chris. Let us <laughs> let us let us know. Drop us a line and let us know when it's coming out. Hopefully there'll be some lessons in there for not just for the Liberal Party, but you know, also for the media, because I think it's it's becoming increasingly clear. Again, it's one of those things like being highly, you know, engaged and 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 being political nerds. We've sort of seen this coming for a long time, but it's fascinating to see the less engaged, less less active general electorate 
starting to wake up to these trends as well. And I'll give you a, an anecdote. So the day after the Aston election, by-election, my mum and I went out shopping and went out to lunch and we are chatting about it. And my mother has been her whole life a dyed-in-the-wool Liberal voter, as was my father. The only time each of them have voted for Labor in their lives was in the 2021 WA election, just to put it in context for you. So we're chatting about it and I was telling her that what had happened in Aston and how Labor had won and everything else. And she summed it up and I apologise in advance for the language, but this is a direct quote, but she said, they don't have anybody. They're all fuckwits. And I was very entertained by that. And I sent a message to the WA state executive because they all know mum. They met mum during the 2022 election mm. and um, just give them a bit of a laugh on her uh, her political insight. And I said to them, if a 78-year-old, low-information, disengaged Liberal voter can pinpoint the problem with the Liberal Party better than the political commentators in the press gallery who literally do this for a living, we are being badly served by the media in this country. Yeah. Agreed. I would not want to be working in the media right now because mm. to be an impartial and really give major parties a decent go at it, I, I don't know how you do that actually at the moment. So for all my frustration with the media, I actually mm. also think it's a pretty tough gig to somehow find a way to navigate through the crap that is there. That is a really, really fair point. When I was listening to this episode during the editing process, I had a case of the I should have said's. There was an additional point I wanted to make about the media and the loss of Aston by the Liberals. And only in the edit did I realise that I didn't make it. So having the luxury of being the host and editor of the pod, I'm going to make it now. Something that I found surprising and interesting in the narrative of the Liberals being in serious trouble after the Aston by-election was a theme that seemed to have emerged alongside it which was this kind of mild panic or alarm about them being in trouble. And underlying that was this assumption that the existential crisis enveloping the Liberals is bad for the country. And it comes across as this assumption that the Liberal Party has an inherent right to exist. And in existing, has an inherent right to be a party of government. And look, I'm a member of a party that lost its parliamentary representation and you might say has been in a political oubliette for the last 15 years. Indeed, during elections, our social media team have fielded comments from people telling us point blank that we no longer have the right to exist or even to contest elections. So I am quite happy to own my bias here. But I find this assumption by the mainstream media that the Liberal Party not only has a right to exist but a right to be in government really curious particularly when independent media and commentators are providing quite compelling analysis on why the Liberal Party is heading for at least irrelevancy, if not extinction. Regular listeners will recall Tim Dunlop coming on the podcast and saying point blank that they were toast. And I remember my really shocked wow when he made that call, because at the time that we recorded that episode in the week before Christmas last year, it seemed an incredibly bold call. I was starting to suspect that they might be in trouble, but I didn't expect their decline to apparently be in full swing four months after Tim called it. I expected it to take two or even three election cycles for the decline to become apparent, which is a lesson to me not to underestimate the acuteness of Tim Dunlop's insights. So does the Liberal Party have a right to exist? Of course it does. I would be a hypocrite to be working for the restoration of the Australian Democrats to Parliament, as I do, to say that they don't. However, their right to exist, as the Democrats' right to exist, as any political party's right to exist, is contingent on support. We have former senators who will tell you that your right to be in Parliament disappears the moment you lose the support of the electorate. And as we just got done discussing... The way the current Parliamentary Liberal Party seems determined not only to not learn the lessons from all the elections that they've lost over the last couple of years, but to then double down on all the behaviours that have contributed to those election losses, means that they are destined to continue losing that support. And if they keep it up, eventually they will lose their parliamentary representation. It took two election cycles for the Democrats to disappear from the federal parliament. 
It seems unthinkable at the moment for the mainstream media, but it is entirely possible for the Liberal Party to lose their parliamentary representation. So that's a really long way of saying that the disruption and transformation of our politics has only just begun. And you'll probably see it speed up over the next couple of elections. And it will be very interesting to see whether our legacy parties are paying attention and their willingness to change with the times. So thank you for letting me indulge in that thought bubble. I hope it all made sense and maybe gave you something to think about. Until next time. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.